When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing for Thursday, July 22nd. I'm Samuel Burke, joined by my co-host Jack Farley in New York and in Massachusetts. We have trader and manager of the Real Visions Exchange. For the first time, Peter Pinkasov, welcome to the show. Peter, we want to hear a little bit more about your journey, but first I want to give you a preview of what we're going to put to you today. Of course, we're tracking that story about the surprising uptick in jobless claims in the United States, but really it has to do with automakers more than anything else. Jack, what are you tracking? Well, headaches continue for the Chinese ride-hailing app Didi, which fell 10% in U.S. markets. This, as it learns, it could face a fine of up to $3 billion. Samuel? Yeah, more than that $2.8 billion fine that Alibaba, of course, another U.S.-listed Chinese stock faced not that long ago. The other story that I know Peter's keen to talk about, Bitcoin maybe finding its bottom, stabilizing at $32,000 after unsurprising backing from Kathy Wood, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, all in the same venue, but new details coming out about their holdings. We'll be taking your questions if you're on the exchange, which Peter runs, or if you're watching us on YouTube or the RV platform, we'll be putting those questions to Peter. And Peter, before we jump into the stories and get your analysis, just give us a little background. I know you have an extensive background in trading, but tell us about your journey and how you came here to Real Vision. Yeah, sure. So thank you all for having me. It's been really, really fun getting to know a lot of the community, especially on the exchange and off the exchange. My background has been working uh, that I've been working in is uh, basically trading at hedge funds and family offices for the last 10 years. Uh, six years of that is full time. So have some experience doing long short uh, equities as well as commodity futures, treasury bonds. Uh, so I've been quite active in that. So looking forward to really uh, driving home some uh, analysis uh, and some some of the things that I, that I did in my past for uh, the uh, real vision community going forward. Well, let's get you to drive home that analysis right now. So expectations were for 350,000 jobless claims for the week ending in July 17th. They really move far past those expectations, 419,000. Let's just put this in perspective, though, because it really all has to do with the automakers. Once a year, car factories reset, and in those weeks, their workers actually come off the payrolls and they collect unemployment. That's not expected this time of year, but because of the pandemic, the shortage in chips for cars, it's happening now. So you saw big upticks in places like Detroit, Michigan, exactly where you'd expect it for car makers, Kentucky, Texas. I mean, that really all says to me short term. Peter, when you look at those numbers, what does it tell you about the big picture? Yeah, so uh, big picture, uh, you know, economically, I think we're going to see this more often where uh, prints are going to come in more on the downside. And that's because we just had such a boom uh, after COVID where the government kind of stepped up and intervened. And uh, how we track our data is usually on a quarter of quarter or year or year basis. And we're in that kind of late July, August period where it was really booming last year. 
And uh, Jack, I know you put up a chart that uh, is really, really interesting to me that showed that uh, a lot of the estimates from analysts about this jobs number came in less than expected. Yeah, thanks for teaming me up, Peter. Let's take a look at that chart, which shows exactly that, that in fact, every analyst of the 41 analysts in the Bloomberg uh, economics survey missed the mark. They had it um, ranged well below 400,000 for all of their estimates. And it actually came in at 419,000. So as you can see on this chart, it is a pretty uh, epic miss. Let's let's put that chart down. And uh, I actually I have to say I agree with both of your analysis that this isn't necessarily a cause for concern. You know, it's often a refrain from economists, analysts that jobless claims or the labor market is something of a lagging indicator. That is to say, it's a snapshot of the past rather than a, a portent of the future. Um, and I think that. Going back to Samuel's point about the automotive issue and, and the chip shortage, that really was a huge problem that we weren't getting these semiconductors, these chips from uh, Asia that, that work integral to the production of vehicles. And that's why companies like Ford, like GM, were warehousing these vehicles that were, they were completely ready except for the chip. They were just waiting for them. Um, that's why we had this huge rise, huge surge in vehicle prices, both new but particularly used. And I'm, you know, one thinks of the Mannheim used car index that actually has started to roll over over the past few months. So perhaps um, that part of the you know, inflation story is transitory and likewise uh, shouldn't be a cause for concern. Samuel? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think what really surprised me is that for so many weeks, you've heard people saying what's really causing wage inflation is the fact that you have people on these, uh, on these extended rather job benefits and that's coming to an end. So me, uh, like so many other people, like the people who were surveyed were thinking, all right, that's finally coming to an end and you're finally going to start seeing those numbers coming down. But it just shows that so many of the cyclical, uh, so much of the cyclical nature is not following uh, its cycles. On the whole inflation deflation debate, Peter, where do you, uh, where do you fall? Well, I think uh, some of the points that you mentioned are absolutely right. Uh, you know, labor is a lagging indicator. And I think right now it's an interesting time in the market where you're seeing um, a lot of things, uh, especially in the reflation trade, getting leaned on on the 10-year yield right now. So there's a lot of correlations going on, for, especially in small caps right now, where uh, basically the, I feel like the market is leaning on the 10-year yield for that gauge. Now, on our end, uh, I can, you know, I see a labor shortage really everywhere. Every time I drive, I see anyone trying to hire somebody for $15, $20 an hour. Uh, you know, construction costs are because obviously lumber has just uh, absolutely skyrocketed in recent uh, times. Uh, the housing prices are going up. Uh, we're really interesting to see if that's going to impact wage pressure in the future, uh, because that might be a reinforcing factor where home affordability might be really, really low right now. So either two things have to happen. One, home prices come down or two, wages go up. And if wages go up, which is probably the more realistic situation, that probably is a stimulatory or a reflationary kind of factor going forward. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Peter, about housing specifically. We have uh, recent data from Zillow showing that the cost of rent increased 7%. Admittedly, that's year over year. But that part of the market, uh, owner-occupied rent, which amounts to 25% of the inflation index, the consumer price index, um, that really ha we haven't seen an increase in that. But of course, we've seen this momentous wave, this surge in pricing for housing in terms of the actual uh, price of buying a house. The price of buying a house typically leads a rental prices by somewhere around six to 12 months. So the question is, are we going to see that that rise in rental prices as well? Uh, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, when you have uh, trying to get a contractor to come to your house and you have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks 
actually months. I mean, it does it does tell you uh, paint a picture quite clearly. But Jack, before we switch gears and move on to the next story, I know there's a soundbite that you wanted to play for us. So I want to get to that. Uh, you want to see that up, Jack? Yeah. Well, I think um, you know a lot of the people that we interview on Real Vision are very well respected people. They're either analysts or, or they've written a book or something. But we, what I think, what I think is my favorite part of Real Vision is when you actually interview traders, people who have made money consistently over decades. And that is someone who I interviewed today, Noel Smith, who's a proprietary trader um, who really has just generated phenomenal returns for himself and his clients over the past 25 years. And you know, Samuel, to be honest, I think a lot of people watching Real Vision have that dream, have that goal of making 30%, 40% returns for themselves on a consistent basis, which kind of sounds like a pipe dream. But to some people, it's actually a reality. So I think He's, Noel is something of an aspirational figure for a lot of people who are watching Real Vision. Um, so definitely something to, to check out. This clip that we're about to show is I asked Noel how he was positioning uh, into Monday. Of course, on Monday, we had a something of a flash crash in, in equities and, and really equities globally as yields fell and there was concern about Delta. Really, no one really knew what it was. I asked Noel, how was you positioning for Tuesday? You know, is there, is, were things going to be brighter? or were you gonna take risk off the table? So let's take a look at what Noel said. So when you get a hard spike in ball at the close of business yesterday, at the bottom of the market you know, drawdown, what do you do? Do you buy the dip, do you de-risk, or do you get short? You know, and you can express that in bonds, copper, you know, SPY, Qs, whatever you want, because um, there's some kind of correlation between all of them. Um, what we personally did is we, did, we de-risked a lot. Um, now that's not to say that I didn't expect a bounce today. I kind of did, but we don't really ever trade on gut feel or what we think, you know, gut feel is really an algorithm for your past wisdom, right? And you have to, in order to get gut feel, you have to be a market participant for a very long period of time. And that gives you a gut feel. And if your gut gets punched enough, you change your algorithm. Peter, I want to direct this to you because there we have Noel saying that, he thought that um, you know that the, the, there was going to be a bounce back, but he positioned himself for for ha making a reversal that there was not going to be a bounce back. And that reminds me of something you told me recently, Peter, which is that you were short energy um, in your own in your own trading about two to three weeks ago. But now I understand that you're long energy. So I just want to ask you the question: How do you go about making these changes within your portfolio of going long short something to the exact opposite? Yeah, you know, it's a um, strong opinions weekly held, right? Uh, one of the things about traders is uh, we need to build convic conviction to uh, really uh, generate returns because um, if you don't have conviction, then then what else do you have? So this idea that uh, you need to that pivoting is not easy. It's it's one of the most difficult things, and to make that decision is quite hard. And I think in the interview, uh, you know, I think it's spot on where. Uh, you know, it's it, you can tell by the language that he came in, he had conviction. And as a trader, sometimes you have to pivot and sometimes you have to hold. And in that case, you know, somebody was playing for more downside. You have to respect that. I mean, it doesn't always play out. But when you know, when I'm looking at something and I'm already in a position and it's coming, you know, we, we obviously had a, quite a big decline over the last two weeks in energy, uh, Exxon Mobil, uh, COP, obviously, those were the big decliners, and especially in the refining space, Holly Frontier, that was a big uh, decliner as well. Um, you know, these things that have come down and 
uh, some of the things that we were talking about earlier in the show was this idea that you you might get this uh, opportunity for growth and reflation, and some of those things that might benefit is energy. And that idea didn't really come to fruition until you know earlier in this week, maybe. And uh, so when those things click, well, you have to pivot yourself because you know, like I said in the beginning, strong opinions weekly held. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I should mention this is on the essential tier available for all Real Vision essential members. Peter, what you said uh, it puzzles me a little bit. I want to get into it. Why were you short two or three weeks ago? And what was it that made you recently say, hmm, I'm, I'm into this? Because the narrative was the exact opposite. Why are you sort of swimming against the tide here? Yeah, well, you had a lot of things in energy uh, that might have been, well, I don't want to use the word a lot, but you had some things in energy from not only a positioning standpoint, but OPEC as well, where uh, you could have seen a, a sharp decline. I think that the sentiment was quite strong for uh, you know more growth and uh, you know leisure stocks, big cyclicals continuing to rise. And they already had uh, really, really strong gains into this year. So from a positioning standpoint, it was very hard to just buy them at the top. Um, but I'm, I'm sure some people didn't. I still think that trade might be okay, given where we are now. Um, but for the most part, you know, at that time, you had some big, big countdowns from a DeMarc standpoint. We can show that chart in a little bit. But uh, from a technical standpoint, we were exhausted. Sentiment was completely bullish. And you had OPEC news that they were going to increase uh, uh, increase production in the medium term. And those basically three factors led me to take a, a short position in energy. I just keep on coming back to that point that I brought up a couple of weeks ago that, I mean, the Emiratis making it quite clear that they think that long term, well, they, they want to cash out now and they want to invest a lot of the money that they're getting in, in this picture frame in alternate energy sources and just diversifying their economy. I keep on coming back to that over and over again, Jack. Yeah, well, well I, I look at it from the ESG perspective, Samuel, which is that the amount of there are, there are a lot of people who think that what ExxonMobil and you know coal, uh, natural gas, I mean, what they do is is rendering much of the earth uninhabitable, and the the number of those people increases day by day. I will say, Samuel, about with regards to in the Middle East, I, I think there is a a very powerful person in the, um, the Saudi prince, the, the Saudi prince of oil, said today that uh, Saudi Arabia will will. Um, uh, get drain dry the last drop of hydrocarbon of, of oil. It will be Saudi Arabia. So I think there are some people in Saudi Arabia who are very into divesting and, you know, giving that money to SoftBank so that they can invest in WeWork and Uber and the like. But there are those who say, hey, uh, we're, we're, we have the best uh, natural reserve of oil and let's take advantage of it. Um, Samuel, uh, you're going to say something about, uh, should we move on to um, uh, China? Yeah, I mean, you know that I'm always across the China tech story. Uh, whether it's uh, Alibaba or continuing to be Didi. Basically, what we're seeing now, more and more, it's we're getting a clearer picture that China's upset with these companies, Chinese companies that have been listed in the United States, not necessarily for listing uh, in the U.S., but more to do with data disclosure and data requirements they have because they list in the United States. I want to read you a list, Jack and Peter, 
of what DD is now facing, of course, ride hailing service, similar to Uber, Uber has a stake. Uh, what DD is facing as a result of their IPO uh, in the United States? Uh, suspension of certain operations in China, introduction of state-owned investors, a forced delisting or withdrawal of DD's US shares, or a fine that could be bigger than the fine that Alibaba paid of $2.8 billion. I was speaking to one of the leading researchers, analysts for one of the biggest financial institutions in the world recently and asked him, well, what do you make of China at this point, given all that we've seen with what's a sudden shift? He was careful to say it's not such a sudden shift. Uh, essentially, what's been happening is that some Chinese companies weren't taking the advice of the Chinese cyber administration and basically, this is China making it very clear, you're going to follow us all the way through. But what he said at the end of the conversation was, basically, China is so opaque for him at this point that he really doesn't have a strong view anymore. He just is not thinking of China because uh, so much can change so quickly, as we've seen here. So, Peter, I'm interested to get your take for the folks that have diversified their portfolios, tech in the United States, tech in China, and you see this happening. At the end of the day, I'm still asking myself a fundamental question. Whether these delistings happen or not, how they happen, these companies still have incredible revenue. When you look at a company like Alibaba, nothing here is saying that they can't keep on shipping products all around the world. So taking those two factors into account, where's your view? Yeah, uh, Samuel, I, I think that broadly, Mark regulators and policymakers and people who uh, are responsible for some of the China uh, financial uh, regulation, I I think the worst thing that can happen um, is that you get a delisting. And I think that's a negative expected value bet. I think that will just cause chaos. And that's, I don't think that they're trying to cause chaos. I think what you said was right was, uh, you know, according to the Bloomberg article that, that I read today, that uh, Didi was basically asked to keep everything on the quiet, but it ended up being one of the hottest IPOs. I really think that you know they didn't follow the script that was set for them. Um, but what's interesting is that I think all the eyes are on Didi. But you know some of these prices, like you said, are really quite attractive. I mean, Alibaba is to me trading like Google was in 2014. Um, I think that there was just a large mandate to get out of these things because of some of the risks that you're talking about. Um, you know, if you're a pension or whatever or a hedge fund and you have investors who are worried about some of these things, you're going to de-risk. You don't necessarily like to do it. But I think a lot of that price action that we've seen is a lot of unwinding mandates. And some of these stocks do look quite attractive, but we have to understand that there are, there are always those black swan risks. And, you know, and basically what we've seen over the last two years is this is a market where anything can happen, uh, negative oil, negative interest rates. Um, so, you know, don't put it out of the cards that a delisting can happen, can't happen. But um, I, I do think that it's a negative expected value bet based on where valuations are. And, and at the end of the day, at least things are much clearer now from from China about where wh what they want from IPOs, where they want them to happen. They'd prefer them to happen in a place like Hong Kong as opposed to the United States because of data. So at least we have a much clearer picture now. And I keep on saying we should have been watching closer to IPOs that were canceled, like Seoul, a major social network, which I talked about with Rex Woodbury here on the Exponential Age, for instance. We should have had a closer eye when all of a sudden, literally 24 hours before they're about to IPO, they were canceled. There were some canaries in the coal mine, Jack. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's easy to look at this story and say that the Chinese government, they are so strict, they are so onerous. 
I think a case could be made for the exact opposite, that the Chinese capital yeah. markets op operate like something of a Wild West. And, you know, the, the Enrons of, of the United States happen every five, 10 years, but that there are multiple uh, in China at, at this very moment. You know, there's so many stories about uh, a, for a forest REIT that owns, um, you know, essentially a logging company and, and the trees didn't exist. Uh, the, the dye company, the, the, the factory doesn't exist. Um, I, it's interesting to me that it actually isn't American investors who are raising the alarm bell by, uh, you, you know, being very, very um, demanding higher standards for disclosure, but it actually is the Chinese government who is uh, raising the alarm bell for um, the exact opposite reason. But um, Peter, I want to ask you, how are you viewing China? You said you mentioned Alibaba is a bargain. Um, yeah, to expand on that, and uh, maybe we can put up the chart of the uh, iShares China ETF. Yeah, so you know, for, at the end of the day, I, I think uh, execution is quite important, especially if you're an investor. And yeah, these valuations are, uh, quite interesting, but timing them is obviously an important factor as well because you know um, nobody wants to take 10, 20, 30 percent heat or even 50 percent heat going forward. Uh, how I view markets is basically through the DeMarc indicators. And recently, we just had a 13 combo countdown in MCHI, which basically means is that uh, we have uh, the possibility of a trend reversal for the next 12 bars at a very high percentage. So I'm looking for this range to hold for some confirmation here from a price standpoint to maybe even uh, diversify in some other China names. JD is also a very interesting one as well. Um, Baidu is a little bit interesting for me. I, you know, A lot of my trades are also based on valuation cases. Um, I don't obviously wanna tell anybody what to do and I'm not a financial advisor, so keep that in mind, but I put a value on it at around $200 a share last summer. Uh, things haven't really changed from a top line growth perspective. So um, that one isn't too interesting to me, but Alibaba and um, JD are definitely pretty interesting down here, given where MCHI is from a technical standpoint. Yeah, I should say uh, all these DeMarc indicators uh, are like ancient Greek to me, um, but and I'm sure they are too to many of the people watching them now. But if you want to learn more, we don't have time on the daily briefing, but you should definitely check out uh, the exchange where, where Peter does a, a breakdown of them. Samuel, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. Perfect tee up for the exchange because Ralph Humphrey over on the exchange, which you manage along with Weston, uh, says, I'd like to hear your breakdown, your Bitcoin bottoming call, as well as discuss your brand of technical analysis, Peter. So just to remind folks, uh, this all started on Twitter. We saw Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey tweeting each other. Kathy Wood uh, stepped in and said, all right, let's uh, make this happen. And it happened yesterday, a big discussion. And basically, they have very different views uh, of cryptocurrencies. But at the end of the day, Elon Musk uh, disclosed that SpaceX does have Bitcoin holdings that he's not selling, or SpaceX, I should say, is not selling anytime soon. Major backing it isn't surprising from these folks, but to hear that he has holdings in Dogecoin, for example, and Ethereum, just a lot more details coming up. But that's a, a stabilization. What about for the big picture, Peter? Does this actually, a conversation like this, really affect Bitcoin outside of this 24-hour window? You know, um, the timing of Elon Musk's tweets at the highs make me say that, yes, these conversations do matter. As a speculator for the last 10 years, I would my initial uh, kind of response to that would have been no. But we basically saw Elon kind of the news kind of trigger that wave of selling back in February. Uh, but now we're seeing, uh, I don't know if we can pull the chart up uh, for Bitcoin. 
uh, versus the U.S. dollar. Right now, we're seeing something very similar as the China names. We're seeing a 13 combo countdown completed at the lows. We're starting to see a pop back up on a narrative where uh, Kathy Wood is starting to get more interested, Elon's with SpaceX. And if we do get some price stabilization, you never know with Bitcoin. It's, it's one of the most volatile assets, obviously up an exponential amount over the last 10 years. Um, very, very interesting level to me, this 32,000 area is what I'm looking for it to hold for, given where the DeMarc indicators are. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right. We're going to, I'm going to keep on going with more uh, questions. Uh, Erica Frith, explain negative expected value uh, bet, please, Peter. Sure. So uh, basically, in gambling theory, a negative expected value bet would be, uh, you know, if you do that bet over 100 times, 1,000 times, uh, in the end, you would probably be a net loser. Um, so that's all I mean is I just don't think uh, uh, that kind of bet would be uh, profitable over the long term. Yeah, if, if I may ex expand upon that, I think you, you said that with regards to betting that DD would delist. So that is to say betting that DD would go down or shorting it. I remember, was it Luck and Coffee, which had a huge fraud problems? People who shorted that stock, obviously you want to short a stock that is uh, revealed to be a fraud, right? They had problems because they had bought put options on something that ended up being delisted. Or I, I'm not sure if I have my facts straight, but how do you go about analyzing the risk and reward of, of shorting something when the thing you're shorting might not even exist the next day? Yeah. Um... That's a very difficult one. Obviously, short selling overall is one of the most difficult things ever. And we have some amazing guests in the main Real Vision content uh, that describe their process and their workflow. Um, you know, I am not a, a short seller and I don't know how to short sell well. When I do do short sales, it's mostly uh, sector based, factor based. I think this sector is going to uh, underperform. Uh, shorting individual companies to zero has got to be a skill set in its own. And I completely respect people who are able to do that, have conviction and hold, uh, you know, because there's obviously carry costs involved, uh, commissions. Uh, your broker is going to jack margins for your short, especially as volatility goes up. And, you know, your upside is only making that 100%, whereas if you're long, basically your upside is unlimited. So uh, lots of props and hats off to uh, short sellers out there for being responsible speculators and, and doing what needs to be done. Um, for uh, I think Samuel brought, the, brought up this idea about uh, this opaqueness in China names. And that makes it even harder because, you know, where does the shareholders equity go? Me, as somebody who likes Alibaba, for example, um, I'm still looking at the balance sheet and, and see that opaque uh, shareholders equity and, and cash flows thinking this doesn't all completely add up 100 percent, but it looks OK. So, you know, th there's a there's a there's a grain of salt with some of these names, especially in China. At the risk of you repeating yourself, we had a, a question coming in from Prius Omega. Is investing in China worth it? The rug? being pulled out from under you in a in a flash seems risky. I mean, that that is exactly what this uh, analyst was telling me from this major financial institution that I was referencing, that it's very hard 
long term, yes, he was agreeing with the point that Peter and I keep on coming back to revenue. Do you really think revenue is going to dry up at Alibaba, given these types of concerns, given that the Chinese seem to be signaling quite clearly that this has to do with data at the end of the day? So certainly the, the viewer is right that the rugs has been pulled out. But getting back to those fundamental questions uh, about revenue mentioned, JD, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, that's what I keep on coming back to at the end of the day, Peter. Yeah, I think that the rug pull, you know, maybe what the uh, what the question was regarding was maybe a rug pull on a delisting, because that would be quite catastrophic. And I think, you know, from a, an execution standpoint, I think it's all about sizing at the end of the day, right? Obviously, uh, the worst way to uh, end your investing career is to go all in on Alibaba and uh, on margin. And then they have a delisting and then you lose all your money. That would be just catastrophic. But, you know, if you put on a one or two percent position in Alibaba and it gets delisted and goes down 50 percent, it's not the end of the day. You survive to live another day. But that that, you know, that one or two percent position probably means that you're not going to make huge gains or whatever. So it's all about comfort level and level with risk. to me. And just to drive the point home about what the Chinese are signaling, they we're getting very specific details that China was upset about data from Didi, again, the ride-hailing app, uh, revealing information about where government officials were moving in Didi. So this really shows the, uh, the how much of a value the Chinese are placing on data. They really are taking this seriously to the tune of being able to have companies' valuations drop incredible amounts. They place data privacy at a much higher value than that. Uh, Jack, any other viewer questions you want to bring in? Um, I actually was not looking at them at, at all. Sorry. Do you have anything? What is your future outlook, Chris Battenfield asks, on jobless claims? Go back to what we were talking about earlier. Significant impact to inflation transitory debate? I think you answered that a little bit. If you just want to elaborate, Peter. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I'm quite optimistic. I, and I think one of the points that you made earlier regarding, you know, this this narrative that people have about uh, people are com being comfortable with staying on unemployment. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. We're not really seeing that in the data. Uh, I'll have to see next week if this was really just a one-off, given uh, some of the, the the data regionally that we're seeing uh, with the automotive narrative as well. Um, but I'm quite optimistic. I think that you know unemployment should trend lower, especially if wages start to come up here and people are more incentivized to take that job, uh, especially maybe even uh, some of these municipalities offer uh, programs where people are uh, get a bonus to go back to work. Uh, I'm not sure if we really, I, I remember people talking about that. I'm not sure if that has been uh, put into place anywhere, but it's, it's uh, I'm quite optimistic on it. One, one other viewer question to throw at you. Vittorio Cotorini says, are there any specific regions you're observing right now? What's your view on Europe? Good question, especially considering we got uh, what I would say clarification from the European Central Bank today. We've talked about in the past couple of weeks, how they moved their target before inflation always had to be below 2%. Now they say, oh, 2% or above, but also saying that the bond buying will continue into March 2022. Madame Lagarde saying that she uh, continues to view inflation as transitory nonetheless. But I think for me, what I see is a clear picture coming out of Europe. I mean, just really hammering home in much clearer fashion, especially compared to what we saw uh, in the United States with the Fed's uh, trembling all of a sudden in front of inflation. We haven't really had that here in Europe. Is it a fair assessment that you think Europe's a bit, we have a bit more clarity over on this end of the, on this side of the pond? And, and what is your view in Europe, uh, uh, Vittorio wants to know? 
Yeah, with Europe, um, you know, I, I think that their central bank narrative is, is quite aggressive. They're very clear on their intentions to do whatever it takes. Uh, today, we saw the euro trade initially higher, but now back on the lows, uh, given that whatever it takes narrative. Some of the European banks are quite interesting, especially if, uh, you know, the, the, the Bund and the uh, German tenure starts to stabilize, quite similar to the factors that we're seeing here. Maybe, you know, revenue and top line margins can start to come up in some of these banks, like DB, for example, was up close to 5% yesterday on that ADR. It is interesting to me. It's not a sector that I'm uh, completely focused in or have any expertise or on that subject matter. But I, I think the risk reward is quite similar to a lot of the regional bank names that you're seeing here as well. And I think overall, the reflation trade is more or less uh, dependent on where these sovereign yields are versus any one region. And where that alpha or that gamma is going to be is basically in the currency, most likely, where you get outperformance in one. And those things are quite hard to predict uh, you know, beforehand. And it's it's not something that I have analyzed yet, but maybe next time we go on Real Vision, I can discuss it. And I can just tell you the travel industry back on really on a knife's edge here in Europe. I mean, the regulations have come, gone, and now come back again with the Delta variant and the travel stocks really uh, continuing to be hammered. Peter Pinkasov, manager of the exchange here at Real Vision, Jack Farley. Thanks for joining me here on The Daily Briefing. And thanks to the viewers for your comments. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.